chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, or humble, or lowly, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beseech you, or beg you, or implore you, that I may not be bold when I am present with you with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In the ways of God's order that he has established in, in, in what he does and in, in the way that he works, he has chosen that there always be an entity or an establishment on the earth through which he does his work within the world. Now, in Old Testament times, that entity was the nation of Israel. God raised up Abraham, and then through his descendants, he formed a nation that he named Israel, which means governed by God, because they were to be governed by God. And that was the entity through which he worked in the world. And so the prophets, those that recorded the scriptures, King David and his lineage that would ultimately bring forth the Savior, all of that came through the nation of Israel, whom God had established for that purpose, to establish truth, that is the Old Testament scripture, and a Savior, that is Jesus, who would come through that lineage, the lineage of David. And so God worked through that entity in the Old Testament. In the New Testament times, the entity through which God works in the world is no longer Israel. Not that they're done. God has a future plan in place for them. But in the present day, the entity that God is working through is what we call the church. Jesus first spoke of it in Matthew chapter 16 when he said that upon this rock, the rock of his lordship, he said, I will build my church. He spoke of it as something that was future. The church was born on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached that sermon, when the Spirit of God fell and 120 became 3,000 uh, in just a few moments. And the church was born. And ever since that time, that is the entity that God has used to perform his operations within the world. Now, the church is not a building. It's not a place that we go, but rather the church is people. It's those that have come into a relationship with God through his son Jesus and have been born again, having their sins washed away, and they then are adopted into the family of God. They become a part of the church, this body. Now, Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Now, the gates of hell speaks of the hell or the government of hell. The gates is where the government would be. And so though there would be attacks, Though there would be attempts of evil and darkness to try to subvert and thwart the purposes of God in the church, Jesus said that ultimately they will fail. And thus, 2,000 years almost on the other side 
of the birthing of the church, we're still here, and the church still exists as an entity. Now, we all become a part of it at salvation, whether we like it or not. If you're born again, you are a part of the church. Even if you don't like the church, you're a part of it because that's the entity through which God works. And in that you're a part of it, you're called by him to embrace it and to be a part of it. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, the scripture says that we are not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together as the manner of some is, especially the more so as we see the day, that day, the evil day, approaching. And so the Bible tells us, the word of God to us, is that we're to be a part of the church. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that calls itself the church or that everyone that calls themselves a minister or a pastor or a servant of the church is necessarily the real thing. Perhaps you saw the news article that I saw this week about the synthetic brand or form of marijuana that's being sold uh, probably in a lot of places, but especially it's a big problem down in Brooklyn. And uh, many of the news uh, outlets had featured a a story upon that this past week wherein um, large numbers of people were, were taking the synthetic form of marijuana and it was having such a negative effect upon them that they were literally uh, losing their mind. They were uh, absolutely crazy just um, in, in what they were doing. It was synthetic and it was dangerous. And, and maybe it's a bad, bad illustration, a bad example, but there are synthetic ministries there are synthetic churches, there are synthetic pastors, there are synthetic sermons, things that are brought forth that kind of add the name of Jesus and maybe some of the principles of God and that claim to be truth. But the outcome of those things is never going to be what God intended when he gave the church and he gave the truth. Synthetic church will cause delusional Christians in that same way that we saw happen down in Brooklyn in this past week. Now, what that means is this, is that because we are called to be a part of the church, and we are, that we need to be able to discern between what is real and what is fake, what is helpful and what is harmful that's done in the name of God. So in the closing chapters now of 2 Corinthians, where we find ourselves, chapters 10 uh, through 12 and then even into 13, the Apostle Paul changes gears and he's going to rise up a little bit in defense of himself as an example of a true leader in the body of Christ of a true church. Now, bringing it into the modern day, we absolutely live in the days of counterfeit Christianity. And the counterfeit brand of Christianity that we see in the world today is so good that unless we really know what the genuine thing is supposed to look like, then we ourselves can find ourselves maybe subverted or, or drawn aside by some of the things uh, that, that, that are delusional in the name of the Lord. Now, at this point in the Apostle Paul's life and ministry, uh, where he's at when he writes this letter, he has planted churches in four different regions. Uh, first, he planted churches in the region known as Galatia, which was kind of the eastern, northern section of modern-day Turkey, and he planted the church, uh, churches there in Galatia. You can read about it in the book of Acts. 
uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, uh, all of those churches in the region of Galatia. Uh, from there, he moved then into the region of Asia Minor, which would be kind of the western side of Turkey, uh, that same cu country that we look at today. And he planted uh, some churches in that area and did ministry there. The third area or region would be the region of Macedonia, the church of Philippi, the churches of Thessalonica, the city of Berea, he established a church. All of those churches were in that area of Macedonia. And then fourth and finally, he planted churches in the area known as Achaia. And I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's the best I can do phonetically with that word. <laughs> but that would be the portion of southern Greece, Athens and Corinth, and down uh, there in that region, um, there of the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And so those were the four regions that Paul planted churches by this point in his ministry. And for each of those areas where he planted churches, there was a different set of problems that he had to address and correct and, uh, and speak to um, that were taking place in them. In the region of Galatia, it was legalism. The Judaizers were coming in and seeking to rob the Christians of their freedom in Christ and bring them back under the law of Moses. And so Paul had to write to them concerning that. The region of Ephesus was largely plagued with idolatry. And, and Paul constantly contesting with the worshipers of Diana and with the multiplicity of gods that they worshipped in that city. In the region of Macedonia, the issue that they faced the most was deep poverty and tribulation. And so when you read Philippians and Thessalonians, they're, they're letters that are heavily bent on addressing Christians that are suffering and Christians that are going through tribulations and trials and how to deal with those things. But in the region of Corinth, it was a much different thing. It wasn't legalism that they were uh, wrestling with there. It was uh, you know, maybe liberalism. They'd gone too far in the other direction, but not legalism. It wasn't necessarily the idolatry, though there were idols in Corinth. That wasn't really the issue. And it wasn't the poverty. It was a very affluent port city that had a lot of trade, and there was a lot of money and, and wealth in the city of Corinth. So it was none of those other things. The issue that Paul had to deal with in Corinth, above all the others, was, was a deep sense of carnality or, or um, a division in the heart between the things of God and the things of the world. There was so much affluence and there was so much luxury and there was so much free time and there was so much entertainment and there were so many influences from so many parts of the world that the church found itself compromised it constantly fighting against those other outside influences coming in. And so as we read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul constantly bringing them back to holiness, constantly bringing them back to the word of God and to the ways of God and to separation from the world and from the ways of the world and the things of the world. That was the issue that he had to deal with in Corinth. Now, the agitators or the people that made Paul's life difficult in this region were the people that came in and sought to secularize the church. They tried to make it like a worldly entity. And so they would bring in speakers that were great orators that were highly respected within those days. They would speak truthful things oftentimes. They would be bringing the message in the right way, but they would do it and they would base their, the emphasis of their ministry upon the outward things, on the things that were observable, the way their words made people feel, 
the way their presentation affected people emotionally. Everything was very outward. And because the Corinthians were so used to being in such an outward society, they began to measure churches and ministries based upon how it affected them aesthetically and emotionally rather than the deeper things of the moving of the Spirit of God and of the changed life and things under the surface. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul at this time or at any time within his life, he was concerned only with what was taking place inside the life, the change of the heart, the salvation of the soul, the things that were done in the unseen place that would result in fruit in the seen and and in the outward things. That was the Apostle Paul. He was sincere, he was authentic, and he was legitimate. But because of that, it gave great place for people to come into Corinth and to say that Paul is not the real deal. Don't you remember that when he spoke, he was not eloquent in the way that he put his words together? Don't you remember that his services were long and drawn out? That there was nothing about them that at all was entertaining or maybe uplifting and encouraging in that way. But rather, he dealt in truth. And and, and because Corinth had now had some orators and had some pretty flashy people come through and, and put on some pretty impressive services, they began to believe the criticism of those that would speak against Paul And to think that, yeah, you know what? Maybe Paul isn't the real thing. And maybe we don't have to listen to his words. And maybe we can loosen up some of these standards and we can allow some of this fleshiness into the church and into our lives. And so now Paul, as he rises up in defense of himself, he's going to speak to these criticisms. He's going to speak to these compromises and to these voices that had come into Corinth and that were slandering him in the presence of those whom he had led to the Lord in the first place. And so that's what Paul is dealing with now in these chapters. He's answering the question of what is authentic ministry and what is authentic leadership? And that's something you say, well, I'm not in ministry. Does this even apply to me? It absolutely does. Because if you're a part of the church in the year 2016 in the United States of America, then you need to know the difference between what is real and authentic and what is fake and plastic and outward? What is the power of God and what is simply the power of pulling emotional strings? And there can be a very fine line between the two things. And the discerning of those things is an absolute essential for the strong Christian in the days in which we live. And so Paul begins this segment of these chapters in the first seven or first six verses here, giving to us the reason for the ministry. What is the reason for the ministry of the church? What is the reason for what we're doing right now, studying the Bible? What is the reason for putting on an evangelistic crusade? What is the reason for sharing our faith with an unbeliever? Whatever the expression of ministry is, there has to be a reason behind it. We don't just do it to do it. Why do we do it? And at the root of what is real, we have to ask the question, what is the real reason? Why? What's the purpose of ministry? And so Paul begins here by, first of all, addressing himself to them. He says, now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold, 
toward you. So he begins with an imploring or a begging. Notice that he isn't commanding. He isn't bearing down an iron fist or an iron scepter upon them in, uh, in the way that he's presenting his case before them. But he's seeking to reason with them and that, and that they would come and, and just get on the same level and that they might see eye to eye and they might talk face to face about these issues and these things. Notice that he beseeches them by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And that, in our minds, if we pause and just think about that for just a moment, it's an incredible paradox, in a sense. Because here you have the high king of heaven, the one who says that his feet burn as though they're, they're, they're fine brass, the one that one day will tread upon the winepress of the wrath of God and you know his vesture will be dipped in blood and he'll come back riding on a white horse and a sword proceeding out of his mouth, the king of kings and the lord of lords. I mean, you see the, the grand... Uh, lion-like nature of the savior that we have and yet his character and in the way that he deals with people is in meekness and in gentleness the only thing that jesus ever said about himself while he was on the earth concerning his own personality is that he was meek and lowly in heart in matthew chapter 11 he said come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The only thing he ever said about himself is that he was meek and lowly. And when John sees him in the book of Revelation glorified, he sees him as both a lion of the tribe of Judah and also a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And so Paul here, he comes to them and he takes upon himself this same dichotomy or the same dualness of nature he says i beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of christ but i have the ability to be bold if i have to i'm coming to you as a lamb seeking to reason but if you want i can roar like a lion i don't want to do that paul says and so i'm beseeching you by the meekness and the gentleness of christ he says in verse 2, I beseech you so that I may not be bold when I am present. With the confidence wherewith I think to be bold, I want to be bold against some. And here's why he wants to be bold against some, speaking of the agitators, those that are slandering Paul. And here's his gripe with them, that they think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. In other words, what these agitators or slanderers of Paul were saying to the Corinthians as they came in among them is that Paul's ministry was nothing more than natural processes of things, that it was a business model, that, 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 that he was coming in and it was merely outward, it was merely earthly, the product of human energy, and that it was his idea based upon his effort, and it was all being done for his glory. It was according to the flesh. Meaning that Paul sat down one day with his iPad and, and typed out a business plan, and he said, here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to go from city to city, and this is the way that we're going to present ourselves, and this is the way that we're going to earn money, and this is the way that we're going to behave. And in every city, we're going to uh, build a, a, a group of people and get them all together. And, and then we're going to teach them the things that we want them to know, the way we want them to know them. And they're going to believe them. And this is how we're going to convince them. And, and, and it was just a big outward show that had nothing under the surface, no depth, no reality, no calling, 
no anointing, nothing from heaven, but it was all completely natural, just earthly. And that's what these agitators were saying concerning Paul. And it was easy for them to say it because of the way that Paul was. He wasn't outward. He didn't go the extra mile to make things look a certain way. He was simple. He was lowly. He wasn't eloquent, as he says over and over and over to them. And so these agitators caught an audience with the Corinthian Christians. And Paul says, my gripe with them is that they claim that we are walking according to the flesh, that our ministry is merely outward. And so Paul addresses that head on now as he gives the reason for ministry. He says in verse three, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, that is that we are in the realm of the visible, in the realm of the seen, and we're dealing with physical and tangible things. And so therefore, everything that we do is gonna have a physical aspect to it. We are here in the flesh right now. When we walk, we leave footprints. If you come up to me at the end of the service, I'm gonna smell bad because I'm sweating up here and it's been a long day. You know, we are normal, natural people. You probably are too, as you laugh at me, you know, <laughs> and all. You know, but, but it would be very easy. Anyone could come in here and they could sit through a service and then they could walk out and they could brush everything that happened in this place tonight as being something that is merely the product of human division or means. That that was just a totally, there was nothing heavenly about that at all. And Paul says, there's always going to be that because we're in this world. We're in the tangible space. And so he says, for though we walk in the flesh, yes, we're visible, yet we do not war after the flesh. In other words, the work that we're doing and the effect that we're having goes way beyond what is just seen with the eye and heard with the ear and felt with the tangible senses that we all have upon this earth. That our war is not according to the flesh. Now I want you to notice that word and don't pass over it. Do you see it there? It's a three-letter word, war. And Paul is saying, what he's saying to us now, by using that word, is he's saying that this ministry that we've been called to, Paul speaking of himself and what translates even into the, the church in the modern day, that it is a war that we are in. That this is not a game. Do you know that? Do you know that church is not a game? Sometimes I, I, I drive past churches uh, or I'm in churches in other places, or you know, I hear stories about churches or read about them. And, and sometimes I wonder if the people that are running the churches think that, really, that it really is a game. I, I passed by a sign out in front of a church, one of those ones where they put the, the, the cute little phrases. And it said uh, on the sign, it said that Jesus had a fish story too. Join us Sunday mornings or whatever, summer services. You know, and I, and I get it. It's, it's quirky or quibby or whatever. You know, it's pithy. It's okay. Oh, that's cute. Speaking of, you know, the, the feeding of the 5,000, you know, that, that the whole thing. But, but think about it for a minute. What's the, what's the implication there? What's a fish story? A fish story is that I tell you something that's not true about a fish that I caught, right? I read that and I thought, you know, do you really realize what you're, what you're saying there? You know, I mean, is this a game? And I'm not saying that we're supposed to be all somber and that everything is supposed to be all heavy all the time. But understand something, that this is a war that we are in. 
When God made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it says that he created them from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into their nostrils and man became a living soul. Do you know what a soul is? A soul is an eternal entity that is designed by God to be filled with God and it serves no other purpose nor can it. It cannot be destroyed. It will live forever. And thus in the making of that soul, that soul is either going to live together forever with God or that soul is going to live forever separated from God, which is such an eternal hell that it's called hell. And it's described as damnation and eternal flames. And there was a devil that came to them in the Garden of Eden and that subverted them from God's purpose and that sought to kill and to steal and destroy what God made and he sowed sin into humanity. And then that same devil inspired the offspring of those two, those first two, Abel to kill, I'm sorry, Cain to kill his brother Abel who was accepted by God. And all throughout time, Satan has sought at every turn that he can to murder mankind to separate them from God forever. Why did Satan inspire the Pharaoh to kill every child that was born of the Hebrews? Because he knew that a male child from the Hebrews would bring forth the Savior that would be the answer to the sin problem that killed mankind. But it was worth it to Satan to kill and destroy to try to keep God from being able to redeem men and women to themselves. Why later on did, did, did Satan inspire the wicked queen Athaliah to destroy almost all of the royal seed, the seed of David? How did that happen? Why? Where does that even come from? It comes from the heart of Satan, who if he can destroy the line of David, then he can subvert the word and the promise of God and keep the Savior from coming into the world. Why did Satan inspire Haman to try to wipe out the entirety of the nation of the Jews? Because God said it would be through the Jews that he would bring the Savior into the world. And Satan knows what a soul is and he hates God and he hates you so much that he'll go to any length possible to keep men and women separated from God. But God loves you so much and God knows the value of the soul and he values your soul so much that he overcame all of that and sent his son into the world, born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life, then died the wretched sinner's death upon the cross, his blood spilled out upon the ground, in order to redeem and rescue men and women from the curse, and to bring them back into fellowship with himself, so that they wouldn't have to live apart from him eternally. Do you understand the value of a soul, and what it is worth to God to save it, and what Satan is willing to do to destroy it. And when you think of things in those terms, you understand that we are in a war. It's not a game. This is serious. When someone dies apart from Christ, they go into a Christless eternity where they will never see light. And God has given to his church the commission of going into the world, carrying forth this gospel, and speaking it forth not by their own power, but by giving testimony of what God's done in their life and speaking forth the truth of the gospel of this salvation, enabling him then with his power. Did you hear the word? His power to get under the surface of that person's life and to begin to work within them wherein the gospel brings them out of chains of darkness and brings them into the freedom of light 
the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's the purpose. And Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, and it looks like it's merely outward, we do not war after the flesh. We understand that there is a campaign and an expedition that we have been given by God that has high stakes, and we do not take it lightly. And then he goes on to, to, to expand on that a little bit. He says there in verse uh, four, he says, for the weapons of our warfare or the instruments of our expedition or of our campaign, our purpose, are not carnal, fleshly, outward, natural, gimmicky, emotional, soulish. You can use any of those words. They are not simply things that could be employed or picked up by Hollywood or used by someone who's clever with their eloquent speech or someone who can use sleight of hand or sales tactics or psychology to influence a crowd. We don't do those things, Paul said. That's not where our strength is. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty or powerful through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Paul says that the effectiveness of our ministry is not in the outward things that manipulate a person to change their behavior. But the power of our ministry is that it gets under the surface of that person and it changes them and transforms them from the inside so that they become a new creation. It's mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds within the life. Now, in this is what separates true Christian ministry from what is fake. It's the one word, power. That's the word. When Jesus was addressing the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12, they came to him and they thought they had trapped him with their, with their wisdom. They said, Jesus, Moses wrote that if a man dies not having children, that his brother should raise up seed unto him, a law, the law of the Leverite. But Jesus, it just so happened that there was a man who died not having children and his brother took the woman. Then he died not having children. His brother took her. Then he died not having children and his brother took her. And seven brothers all had this woman. None of them, stupid as they were for keep on marrying this woman, seeing the track record that she had and eating the food that she made, each of them, passed without seed, whose wife <laughs> whose wife is she in the resurrection? And they said that because they didn't believe in a resurrection and they thought, how foolish. Jesus, we've trapped him. And the response of Jesus to the, to the Sadducees that brought that question to him that day is he said this. He didn't, he didn't say, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> can God make a rock so big that he can't throw it? Maybe, but he cannot solve that problem, you know. His response to them was this. He said, you do err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. A religious group of people that looked so pious, that were so pure, that were masters of psychologically manipulating people into doing what they wanted, and yet they lacked the true nature of God's power within their life. Jesus said when he ascended on high and he said that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, he said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He said that you're going to receive power, not a religious form, not something that's simply outward. You're not joining the Elks Club. 
It isn't a set of ideals that you are ascribing to, but I'm going to give you power in your life and something's going to happen that's supernatural in you and then something supernatural is going to come forth from you and that's going to be the evidence of what's real. The apostle Paul would testify to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians and he would say to them that when I came to you, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He would say later to the same group of people that the kingdom of God is not in word. It's not in the things that we say, but rather it's in power. When Paul said that he would test the authority of those that were standing before the churches, he said, when I come, I will not know the speech of them that say they're apostles, but I'll know the power is their power within their lives. To the Thessalonian church, Paul would write and he would say, for our gospel came not to you in word only, but in power. And sadly, Paul would write to Timothy at the end of his life and he would say this, that the time will come when those that call themselves Christians will have a form of godliness, but they'll deny the power of it. And it is absolutely possible to call ourselves something or to think that we're something because of what we call ourselves and yet to be completely void or vacant of the experience of God's power working in our lives to make us new or working through our lives to be effective for his cause. The Bible teaches us that God is omnipotent. That word means all-powerful, meaning that there's infinite power with God. He never runs out and never runs dry. And what that means is that his presence is always accompanied by power and that his power is always greater than any other power that exists, no matter what it is. And if he, the omnipotent God, is present in our lives and with us, then there should be evidence in our lives of that power because our God is power. The evidence of that should be there. I love the, the, the preacher who stood in front of a group of people arriving a little bit late and he said, I'm sorry that I'm late arriving here today, but my, my, my issue was that on the way here, my excuse is that while I was walking here, I was hit by a Mack truck head on that was going full speed and that delayed me just a little bit, but here I am. And then he continued with his message for a minute and then he stopped and he said, do any of you have a problem with what I just said? Clothes ironed nicely, hair still neatly put in place. He said, can I ask you a question? If I got hit by a Mack truck on the way here, wouldn't you expect that there would be an effect in my life that you would be able to see on the outside? He said, how is it that we continue to call ourselves Christians as though our lives have been touched by the omnipotent God of the universe? And yet day after week after month after year, our lives go on without any effect of that power looking like anything to anyone else in the world. There's a power that our God gives to work within our lives to make us what we cannot be in ourselves. And if we're not experiencing that power, it's because we're denying it. We have a form of godliness, but we're denying the power of it. What does his power do? Notice what he says at the end of verse four. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty or powerful through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The word stronghold means a castle or a fortress or a fortified thing. And the context is things that hold the Christian down 
or suppress the kingdom of God from its proper expression in the world. Strongholds that keep God in the dark for men. And Paul says our power pulls those strongholds down. So what are the strongholds that can exist in the life of a person who is even yet a Christian or the strongholds that exist within the world? There are three great ones that each one of us wrestle with on a daily basis. The first and probably the biggest is our own flesh. I don't know about you, but I know that my flesh is a great stronghold and that oftentimes when I'm struggling with something, my flesh is the issue or the culprit in the thing. What the Bible teaches us is that the power of God within our lives is to be stronger than the power of our flesh within our own, if we're real. I just heard that we baptized 77 people at the picnic this past Saturday. And among them, some very close people to me were baptized. It was a pleasure to see that happen in their lives. One of my kids asked me afterwards and said, should I feel anything different? I knew they asked that question because they didn't, you know. And I said, let's sit down. And we sat together and we opened up Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 says this, verse 3. It says, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That just like Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, that's our flesh, that's the nature that's corrupted according to its sinful lusts and desires, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth or from now on we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. So here's what happens when a believer goes under the waters of baptism and then comes up and rises up as a new creation. Listen carefully to me, because it means everything concerning the power of God within our lives. Is that prior to that death, the watery grave, when you go under, your flesh is stronger than your will. Do you understand that? You are a slave. I was a slave to the flesh that I was born into. If my flesh said sin, I was a slave to do what my flesh said. If my flesh lusted after something, I had no power in my will to resist it. Eventually, the flesh is going to overcome because I am a servant to sin. That's where I exist under it. And therefore, I must do what I'm told. If a slave refuses the orders of his master, then that slave is beaten or corrected or manipulated into submission because that slave has no rights of his own. And every one of us were slaves to our flesh. Now, when we go under the waters of baptism and then rise up out of it, our old man is crucified with Christ and we are then born again and the power the mastery of our flesh is broken. It no longer has charge or authority over our lives. All that changed, listen, is the title on a piece of paper. You've been handed a certificate of emancipation. You are no longer under 
the bondage of what your flesh dictates. It doesn't mean that your flesh isn't going to try. That old man who thinks that he still has control over your life is still going to say, hey, you know, you don't have to be radical. <laughs> Just one more smoke. Just one more tryst. Just one more night. Just one more drink. It's okay. You don't have to be like all of them yet. You're just starting out. And you're like, oh, I know that feeling. This is strong. It's too strong for me. Listen, you can still obey the voice of your old man. But here's the good news. You don't have to. You've been set free. In the same way that a slave who's been emancipated can look at his owner and say, I don't have to do what you tell me to because I'm no longer under your authority. You, as a child of God, now possess the power to look your flesh in the face and say, sit down. I don't have to obey you anymore. I've been set free by a power that's greater than you. That's the power of God. And that power is available to every one of us. It's a power to the pulling down of the stronghold of our flesh. And we're called to do it. The habits of the old life are not stronger than Christ in you. You don't have to obey those things. The mindsets and the vices are the issues that grip. The depression, Facebook, whatever it is that holds you captive at its will that you must obey, you no longer have to obey those things. There's power that's been given to your life, power to the pulling down of those strongholds. Another stronghold that exists is what we would call, or the Bible calls, the world, or the spirit of the world, or the system of the world. It's a stronghold. It's in opposition to the kingdom of God. It suppresses light from getting into the lives of men and women. World views, world ways, world morals. I'll give you an example. The concept of evolution is a stronghold. The idea that the world was formed by natural processes over millions and millions of years even though the word of God says that he made it in six days, that it was his work that did it, evening and morning, six literal days of creation. Well, there's a stronghold in the world that has taken root over the past several hundred years that basically scientifically proves, quote unquote, that the world didn't form in six days by the word of God. And that's a stronghold. And how often do we just accept it? We just say, well, we just can't win that battle. You know, we just kind of go with it. We give our opinion where it comes. Why? Why do we accept that? Why do we think that the, the, the stronghold of a lie is stronger than the power of God? When he says that the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Another stronghold in the world is the concept that murdering babies is okay, that that's a choice. That life doesn't begin until the day that the baby passes out of the womb. And so if a, if a woman chooses to not have a baby and terminate that pregnancy, that that's okay. That's become a, a culturally acceptable thing in our society. But that's not true. It's a lie. It's a stronghold that the world has and holds over us. Often we just accept it. We say, well, there's 40 or 50 years of, 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 of precedent that kind of keeps that going and that's just become way too strong for the church or for the Christians to overcome. Really? The Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Why do we accept the status quo? Another one is sexual perversion that's becoming more and more acceptable no matter what it is. 
And we just say, well, we just can't contend with that. The power of people's desire and flesh and their rights and the advocates that will tell them that it's okay, that's just way too strong. No. The Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Amorality. That that there is no such thing as right and wrong. The truth is relative, that we can just do whatever it is that we think is right. And who are you to tell me that my truth is uh, not superior underneath yours? No, it's a stronghold. Atheism, the separation of church and state, things that the world says, this is the way it is. In church, you can come this far and no further. But Paul says, no, the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God. We serve an omnipotent God. And if we would stand up and employ that power that he's put in us by his Holy Spirit, notice it's through him, not through us. What could we see God do? The third great stronghold is the devil himself. Jesus said that nobody can go into a great man's house and steal his goods unless he first binds the strong man of that house. If he can successfully bind the one who's set to defend that house, then he can go in and he can take a spoil. Jesus spoke that parable concerning the hold that Satan has over the life of an unbeliever. Satan is the strong man that holds men in darkness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, You has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. He goes on in verse 3 to say, among whom we all had our lifestyle in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Satan has blinded the minds of those that believe not the gospel of God, lest they should come into the glorious light of God and be set free. He's the great stronghold. He lies to people and tells them not to listen to the truth of God. It's a stronghold. But listen, the power of God is stronger. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. When you and I stand boldly in faith in the power of God and just simply speak the simple gospel into the ear and trust that God's going to get it into the heart of an unbeliever, the power of God trumps the lie of Satan and something happens on the inside. But only God can do that. Man cannot. It's a stronghold. But Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And God has given us power over every stronghold. How? How does it happen? Verse 5. He says, casting down imaginations. The word imagination means hostile reasonings. Anything that falls under that banner would be temptations, worry, fear, anxiety, foolish ambitions, vain pursuits, all of those things, vain imaginations, things that come into the mind in the way of a lie or by the form of a lie of Satan, but we can cast those things down, the images that come into our mind. And he says, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. A high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God 
is anything that takes a place in our minds above God and that justifies disobedience from that place. A rationalization that could come into our mind that would cause us to disobey or to just remain ignorant of the ways of God or to make excuses for sin within our life. High things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. They go higher. They're exalted over. Well, that's archaic. That's so, you know, we don't do things that way anymore in these days. We don't have to obey that. Those are strongholds that need to be pulled down. And then number three, he says, and bringing into captivity or taking captive every thought unto the obedience of Christ. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. How many thoughts do you think in a day? I know that from the time my eyes wake up until the time my head hits the pillow, my mind is going. It is going. <laughs> is there anyone that can say amen to that? I mean, I cannot shut it off. It is just, it's just the way that it is, and it'll go every which way. I mean, thoughts come from every direction. They touch every sector of the life. There's every kind of thought imaginable. And what God is telling me here is that part of his power in my life is that I have not just the permission, but the command to bring every single one of those thoughts into captivity and to filter it through the network of obedience to Christ. Now, how do I know what obedience to Christ is? It's by the word of God which means that it's impossible for me to do that if I don't have a relationship with the Word of God. There has to be a network of truth in order for there to be a net of truth to catch those captive thoughts. Do you understand? But what he's telling me here is that I have power in my life by his Spirit that those thoughts don't have to control me, that I can bring those thoughts into captivity and into subjection to his obedience. In Matthew chapter 6, in a 10-verse span, four times in 10 verses, listen, someone here needs to hear this tonight, four times in 10 verses, Jesus said, take no anxious thought. Four times in 10 verses, he said, take no anxious thought. So here comes the anxious thought. Here it comes. It's coming. Here it comes. Here it comes. How are you going to cope? How are you going to cope without a drink? How are you going to pay that bill when it comes in two days? What are you going to do if that pregnancy test is positive? Here comes the anxious thought. Welcome to my world, you know. <laughs> what are you going to do with that anxious thought? Jesus says, don't take it. Now, at that point, we have a choice. We can say, well, Lord, that thought is strong. <laughs> and that thought is powerful. And I don't know if I can ignore that thought. Can I afford it? No, no. He said, don't take it. Meaning here comes you. No, 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 thanks. Not taking that one today. Take it captive unto the obedience of Christ. That's what he's called us to. He's saying that we are mighty through God. Now, do you notice that all of these things deal with the mind, the imaginations that are to be cast down, the high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ. Knowledge takes place in the mind. The thoughts that were called to take captive. Do you realize that the battle in this war is fought in the mind? Do you understand that? The spoils aren't the mind. The spoil is the heart. 
Whoever gets the heart wins, but the battle for the heart happens in the mind. That's why Satan is constantly trying to get our minds, to blind our minds so that we don't look at truth, and then to lie to our minds so that we compromise the truth. Anything that he can do to get a a foothold in the mind so that he can ultimately grab a hold of the heart. And so how do we keep that from happening if we want to experience the power of God within our lives? Well, two ways. Number one is that you've got to guard your mind against opposing influences, competing influences. If we're constantly allowing worldly ideals and worldly things to come into our mind and put themselves and plant themselves there, then we're sowing into our very minds things that don't belong there in the first place. We must be careful as Christians for the competing influence to guard our mind. Secondarily, and infinitely more important, is that we must be putting the word of God into our minds as often and as thoroughly and as saturatingly, if that's a word, as possible. The word of God is so important. If you and I don't have a working knowledge of the word of God, we're in a moment we can discern something based upon the truth of God's word, then we're in a vulnerable place. And the will of God for every one of us is that the word of God be so written and rooted in our hearts that we don't need to look up chapter and verse and say, what am I supposed to think about this when it happened? No, when it comes, we know what the will of God is. And his spirit's faithful to bring those things back to our mind. But let me ask you a question tonight as we close. Actually, there's one more thing before we close. It's in verse six. He says, number four, finally, not just imaginations, high things, and and captivity, but also he says, having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And here's the idea. The idea is this. Are you willing? to be brought into captivity in that way? Are you willing to experience the power of God in your life to even pull down those strongholds that would keep you back? Because if you're not willing, the game's over right there. If someone doesn't want to be taught, if someone doesn't want to go, even if they have the ability, they're not going to win. So do we have it? Let me ask you tonight as we close and the musicians can come. Is the power of God real in your life? Since the time that you've made profession to Christ and said, I belong to him, is there a change? Has something happened under the surface where you are no longer what you once were? I'm not asking you if you're sinlessly perfect. Not one of us is. But is change taking place? Is something different? Are you now a servant of the light and a servant of righteousness and a servant of his kingdom? Or do we yet serve our flesh? Is the power of God for real? Or is it just a form of godliness that we have? The reason and the purpose of the ministry, as Paul would conclude, as we ask that question, what is the reason? It's this. It's to bring lost souls to an encounter with the power of God to the end that there is true salvation and true change within the life. Do you know the power of the omnipotent God in your life? And if the answer is no, it's not because he's not real. And it's not because he's not powerful. It's something in that I have not allowed the strongholds to be torn down. Or I've obeyed the dictates of my flesh. Or I've succumbed to the strongholds of the world and I've counted God or accounted that God is not strong enough to pull those things down. Let me ask you, what has power in your life tonight? If not the Spirit of God, then what is it? One of the saddest verses in the New Testament is Luke chapter 5, verse 17. 
It says that it came to pass on a certain day that as he was teaching, that's Jesus, that there were Pharisees, religious men, and doctors of the law, that's extremely religious men, sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. But the context and the connotation is that they all left that place unchanged. And they walked out exactly the same as they had walked in. The power was present, but they weren't willing to experience it and taste it within their lives. They were happy enough to have the form. I wonder tonight if there are some here that would taste the power of God. Perhaps some that maybe are even unsaved that have yet to have the Spirit of God come in and turn the light on. Notice, listen, the power of God is present to heal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you'll open your heart to Him in salvation, He will come in and do something that you can't and that no man can do and that no church can do and that no set of words can do. He can do it. And He's willing. Maybe tonight some here that are unsanctified. You've given your life to Christ and you're in. You're going to heaven. You know it. He's done something. But there are areas in your life, strongholds, that you either refuse to let go of or refuse to surrender to the power of God to grab hold of those things and say, God, take all of me, all of me, all of it belongs to you. May God give us wisdom. May he give us boldness. May he give us life. Father, we come to you, each of us here. Lord, we're desperately needy and desperately wanting. And we believe your word that tells us, God, that you're the God of all flesh and that nothing is too hard for you. That you can do all things. That the nations are as a drop in the bucket before you. That you're the God that formed the heart of men. You know the number of hairs on our head. And there's nothing that you can't do. And so tonight, Lord, we desire to lay with open heart before you. And we ask for a fresh infusion of your power within our lives that we might be what we could never make ourselves and that we might do what we could never produce in ourselves. And so we ask you, Father, that you would please fill us again, that you would baptize us with the baptism of power and fire and that you'd send us forth, God, free of every chain, every yoke, every prejudice, every excuse, every justification of evil and that we would walk and newness of life and carry with us the light and salt of your salvation. And so we ask these things tonight. Gracious Lord, please hear our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.